Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. You're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Alhamdulillah, since last Ramadan, over 4 million people have benefited from, listened to, and downloaded the Qalam Podcast. Tens of thousands of people have benefited from and learned from the various classes, intensives, and seminars that Qalam provides. And inshallah, this Ramadan will be providing even more beneficial content, lectures, and programming for people all around the world, free of any cost or charge to them. In order for us to keep doing this work, we need your support, we need your help, we need you to be our partners in this Sadaqah Jariyah. Please go to supportqalam.com. That's support, Q-A-L-A-M, supportqalam.com, and provide your most generous support. Millions of people all around the world are insha'Allah, bi'idnillah, going to benefit from all of this work, and this will be your sadaqah jariyah for the eternal life of the hereafter. We really appreciate having you as part of the Qalam team and supporting us in this work, this mission, this cause. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. So, inshallah, continuing with our um, program here during the last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan, where we're going through Al-Wasiyah by Ibn Qudam Al-Maqdisi. Uh, so essentially, as we've titled it, Parting Advices uh, for the Month of Ramadan. Um, so Alhamdulillah, we're continuing on with the sessions. Um, tonight, inshallah, Ustad Abdurrahman is going to get us started with a discussion on the concept of Al-Istikhara. Al-Istikhara. Istikhara is something that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, but inshallah, he's going to share with us a little bit of the spiritual perspective on istikhara and how and why istikhara is such an important, um, you know, concept not only and practice rather, rather excuse me, such an important practice in our deen, but it's particularly really insightful to talk about it here during the last ten nights of Ramadan. So, moving on, it's uh, it's pretty it logically makes sense that when he talks about talabul uh, haja, that the next section is going to be uh, on what the what what the critical piece of seeking anyone's needs are. And you know, last night I finished my little reminder about the importance of framing your needs correctly and speaking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a hadith actually that came to mind that you know you could understand it generally or you can apply it to that, that conversation where the Prophet was narrated to have said that seek your needs with discretion. The obvious meaning, the more surface meaning is that you, know, you shouldn't be a person that goes running around to everybody talking about everything you need all the time because you're losing your, you know, the, the value of your words. But the other, uh, uh, the other meaning based on the reflections that we had last night from Ibn Atta'illah is, you know, be somebody that gets comfortable seeking needs or the, seeking the assistance with your needs from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like in private, right? So you seek it from others, that's, that's true, but the, the real source of any aid that you're seeking is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the next section right after that would then be al-istikhara. 
and istikhara is the uh, the 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 recommendation or the practice of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, in which a person seeks their uh, uh, their direction and their course to be uh, rightly guided by Allah subhanahu wa taala in their decision making. Um, istikhara is like the spiritual way of handing over your situation to Allah. It's a very active. Uh, spiritual practice in a person handing it over to Allah. The dua itself is, um, you know, it, it teaches almost its own value. When you read the dua and you translate it, it has its own, uh, subhanAllah, like reminders built into it. So it's almost as if the dua is a function of trying to remind you not to stress out in the situation that you're stressing over. So if you're stressing out about something and you make the dua of istikhara, it's almost like the dua is telling you relax. Right, Sheikh? Relax. Relax. That's, our, that's a nice one that we like to use around here, okay? So uh, Ibn Qudamah, he says that, <clears throat> that if you have a situation that you are navigating, that you want something, then he says then make uh, istikhara or pray the istikhara prayer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, pray to raka, he says, from outside of your obligatory prayers. And then say to Allah. And so I'm going to read the du'a, and then we're going to translate it. And along the way, we're going to um, we're going to explain kind of what each portion reminds us to think about. So he says, "Allahumma inni astakhiruka bi'ilmika." So this is number one. A person turning to Allah is deferring all of the knowledge of what is good and what is bad what is right and wrong, easy and difficult, they're deferring that all to Allah. So when we say, oh Allah, I am asking you to choose by your knowledge, bi'ilmika. What we are saying, it's kind of like the in-between the lines, right? Istikhara is a dua where you have to read in between the lines. What you're saying is, oh Allah, my knowledge is not sufficient enough to choose. Like what I have is not good enough to choose. And then he says, and I'm asking you to decree by your power, which means what? I don't have any. I don't have any power in the situation. Like I have enough power, based on the power you've given me, O oh Allah. But beyond that, I don't have the power to change the heart of somebody. I don't have the power to show someone my perspective and to have them agree instantly. I don't have those powers. Allah Taala is the one who has the power to make things clear for people. To flip, to, to flip a person's heart, to make something very obvious or to turn someone away from something. These are all within the grasp of Allah Ta'ala's authority. And so the person then is handing over, number one, the knowledge and the capability to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala alone. And this is the beginning of the dua. Min fadlikil azim. And then you're saying that, oh Allah, this is a favor. This is one of the, from the immense bounties and the favors that you have. Allah Ta'ala doesn't, is not in a need uh, 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 or he's not responsible to answer us in a way that we demand from him, right? Allah Ta'ala is not held hostage by our prayers. Rather, when you approach Allah with your dua, the approach has to be what? Has to be humble, has to be meek, right? Has to be in a, from a position of vulnerability, okay? That because, O oh Allah, you are the one who is capable, and I'm not capable. You have power, and I do not. And, O Allah, you are the one that knows, and I don't know. And you are the one who knows all of the unseen. Because the future for us is unseen. The future for us is from the ghaib. 
We have no idea what it is that Allah has decreed for us, and we don't know what it is that ultimately the future holds for us, what Allah Ta'ala has destined for us in our future. So when we make this dua, the first portion of it is a, it's basically a deflation of the ego. Every single characteristic that you're describing yourself with, you are describing yourself and Allah as opposites. So now, when you look to Allah for help in this matter, you're realizing, oh Allah, I actually am not, not only am I not, I don't know anything, but I'm also not capable, and I also don't have the ability to do these things, right? So the smart person, the intelligent one, is the one who realizes when they are incapable and when they are not adequately prepared, and they do what? They hand it off. They hand it off to somebody else. For many of you who work like professionally, one of the greatest skills that a person can have in like a team environment is the ability to what? Pass the ball, right? To know when, when it's not your shot, it's not your chance. So in this decision-making process, praying istikhara and handing it off to Allah is something that we should all become very, very comfortable uh, uh, doing, okay? So now, and this is where we start to make the dua. We say, Allahumma, in kunta ta'lamu anna hadha al-amru khayrun li fiddini wa dunyaya wa ma'ashi wa aqibati amri. Then we say what? Oh Allah, if this is something, this affair, this matter, hadha al-amr, that is good for me, that is good for me, where? Number one, in my religion. This is, and the sequence is not accidental. The sequence has meaning. So the first thing you're concerned about with any decision you make is what? Marriage. Very good. No. <laughs> the first thing you're worried about, I had to wake everybody up. The first thing you're concerned about, in kunta ta'limu an al-amru khayrun li fi dini. That's the first priority. It's almost like the istikhara is reminding you like how you should be thinking about this decision. And by the time you're done reading it, you're like, oh, I've actually been approaching this incorrectly the whole time. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm confused. Because I've been misprioritizing this the whole time. So you're making du'af whether or not you should buy a house. And that house is like, you know, 45 minutes away from the masjid that you like to go to. And as you're saying this, you're like, oh, this isn't good for my deen. Like, how am I going to, right? Or you're making du'a about whether or not you should accept a job. And that job has some element of it that you know is questionable. And the income is not going to be the greatest in terms of your barakah, in terms of even permissibility. And as you're uttering these words, you're like, la ilaha illallah. It's almost like the dua is answering the question for you itself, right? So the first part is, oh Allah, if this matter is good for me in my deen. And then also in my dunya. Because the dunya is the workshop of where you practice this deen. A lot of times you'll read books and... and, and you have to understand the dunya can, be, can mean different things in different texts from different authors. So when you're reading a book that's maybe a little bit more on like the spiritual tip, the dunya obviously carries a lot of negative connotations, right? Because it's a place of distraction, it's a place of temporary nature, it's a place of, of loss and, and whatnot. But when you're talking about the dunya from a more technical standpoint, from a more, you know, in this matter, when the Prophet ﷺ is speaking about it, even the Prophet ﷺ's words, sometimes you'll say things like, you know, this dunya... Is, uh, is, is worth less than that, that putrid animal on the street, right? And everything in it. And you're like, oh man, this dunya is worth nothing. You know, you just kind of like, ugh. But then every time I see roadkill, by the way, I think of that hadith. But then, you know, you have the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saying that, you know, what, what righteous, what, what, 
how beautiful is it for a righteous man to have to have or uh, for righteous wealth to belong to a righteous man right and we think oh wealth is from the dunya it's evil well if it's a righteous person then it's actually doing a lot of good this building doesn't pay for itself true right this these freezing air conditionings mashallah that stuff doesn't pay for itself so the dunya can have by by nature it can be a distraction it can be a place of of delusion of course but it can also be something beneficial so here in the dua you're seeking oh allah first and foremost i'm worried about my deen but also given the fact that my dunya is my workshop for my deen in order for me to practice my deen i have to be somewhere then you say oh allah wa dunyaya and also for my dunya because oh allah i need to be able to have a place where my family is comfortable where i'm comfortable where i can live and prosper as a as a muslim individual or a couple or a family or whatever so you seek that from allah ta'ala and then you say and if it's good for me in my livelihood in my livelihood emri, and oh allah if it's good for me in my livelihood and in the end of my life and in arabic when they say uh one pole to the other pole east to west heavens and earth then this is a, a rhetorical device to also indicate everything in between. So when we say that Allah Ta'ala is the, the Rabb of the Mashriq and the Maghrib, it doesn't mean he's not the Lord of what's in between those two things. It means he's the Lord of that side all the way to that side. Okay? Which means in Arabic, everything. So here when you say, oh Allah, if it's good for my life and the end of my life, what you're saying is if it's good for the beginning, middle, and end, and everything in between. Okay? Then you ask Allah Ta'ala. Then... What he says is that you ask Allah Ta'ala, if you know it's good for me, then what? فَقْدِرْهُ لِي Then, O oh Allah, decree it for me. Give, give, give me that in my life. Give me that in my life. And وَيَسِّرْهُ لِي Facilitate it for me. Make it something that is attainable for me. Easy is a relative word. I don't like translating it as ease necessarily, but facilitation. Because ease is relative, right? It's subjective. A person could say that something is only easy if it requires no effort. But we know that everything requires effort. Give it to me, facilitate it for me, and don't make it something that is empty for me. Put barakah in it for me, ya Allah. Okay? Allahumma wa in kunta ta'lamu annahu sharrul li. Oh Allah. And if you know that this thing is in fact evil for me, fidini wa dunyaya wa ma'ashi wa aqibiti amri, if you know that it's evil for me in my in my religion, in my world, from the start of my life to the end of my life, and everything in between, then what? Then Fasrifni Anhu. Turn me away from it. Turn me away from it. Which can mean like, don't let me see it anymore. But also it can mean like internally turn me away from it. Like detach my, my desire from it. Take my heart away from it. Don't make it something that I'm focused on or that I see or that I'm, that I'm looking at. Right? When you don't want to see something, when you're done looking at something, what do you do? You turn your head elsewhere. So here we're asking Allah for the strength and the courage and the trust you know, uh, Sheikh is a huge cat guy. I don't know if you guys know this. He loves cats. Our Instagram, our, our, our chats consist of me asking him questions 
8% of the time. And the 8% is not to show that I don't ask him questions, but it's just to show you how many cat jokes we have. <laughs> Overwhelmed, okay? Cats are interesting. One thing about cats that's very ajib is that they blink around you when they're comfortable with you. You guys, this is like a Sheikh Mikhail moment. Should I say it? Y'all not hearing me. <laughs> cats, <laughs> cats blink around you when they're comfortable with you. They'll close their eyes. Well, why would a cat close their eyes when they're comfortable with you? Because they don't gotta, they don't have to watch you anymore. They trust you. If you trust somebody, you don't have to look at it anymore, right? So what you're asking Allah to do is you're actually asking Allah. Yeah, Sherlock, my cat Sherlock, who's like a linebacker. <laughs> he, whenever, whenever someone comes to the door and, and well, it's interesting. When they, when they come to the door and he sees us, because if he doesn't, he thinks it could be us. But then if it's like he sees us, he like looks and then he looks at the door, he's like, you know, and he tries to see who it is. And if it's someone he doesn't recognize, doesn't blink. Right? That's why you never want to make eye contact with a cat, by the way, because they'll, they'll think of it as, as a threat. But back to the point, okay? The point is, you are asking Allah to give you trust in Him by taking your eye off of this thing. Just like an animal takes its eye off of things that it trusts, you're asking Allah, oh Allah, oh Allah, please. Take, take this, Oh Allah, take this away from my, my sight. Meaning what? Oh Allah, I trust you more than I trust myself. Because if it were up to me, I would stare at it and try to figure out how I could get it. Right? Like how many times have we looked for a house or looked for a car or looked for a job or looked at a person or whatever, something that we wanted. And all the signs were coming to us, pointing to us, telling us, this is not it. You know, it's not it. And instead of just taking the, the message and being like, let me move on, we become so we obsessed, as Sheikh said. Obsessed. How can I get there? How can I get there? How can I, how can I figure it out? Okay, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that, maybe this person, maybe that one can help me. Maybe, no. You know, sometimes you have to understand when the stop sign is in front of you. And at that point, you can't even rely on yourself you have to ask Allah to take care of you. Okay? So, oh Allah, take it away from me. And then, oh Allah, because I'm weak and because my turn might only be halfway, I also need you to turn it halfway so that we turn away from each other. And Allah Ta'ala makes it easy for me. But here's the thing. In your faith, Allah will never leave you heartbroken. When you trust in Allah, he'll never leave you heartbroken. That's a that's a that's a that's a qaida imaniya. That's that's a that's a principle of faith. If you trust in Allah, He'll never leave you broken. He might allow you to experience what you think is heartbreak, but what He's actually doing for us, as the scholars say, is He's breaking the attachments from things that just distract us from Him, and then He's letting us experience a true connection with Him. So, what's the last line of istikhara? Oh Allah, turn it, turn me away from it. Turn it away from me. And then, O oh Allah, I ask you to decree for me something that is even better than it. 
and then make me pleased with what you have decreed for me. So the istikhara du'a concludes from a person's perspective, still getting what you want. Isn't that crazy? If you trust in Allah, you'll still get what you want. What you want might change, but you're giving that back to Allah. This is why when people come and they ask me and they say, can I ask Allah to make something good for me? Right? Can I ask Allah? Okay, let's say that I make dua that I, I want to marry this person. And I don't know if they're good or bad for me. Can I ask Allah to make them good for me? Believe it or not, this question was actually asked to some of the, the, the ulama of the past. Something similar. And they said, in theory, yeah, you can ask Allah whatever you want. And Allah is, you know, he, he's over everything's possible. Like he can do anything. But then the question was, and they would they would answer with the the the, the ayah in the Quran when Allah Ta'ala was talking about Bani Israel. When Bani Israel, what did they do? They asked Allah Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala gave them all this beautiful vegetation and crop and food. And they asked for something less. So Allah Ta'ala He asks them, He says, Why would you seek something which is lower over that which is better? The meaning, the scholars, when that answer, they say, whatever Allah has for you, if you, can, if you can trust him enough to be pleased with whatever he's written for you, you'll never be disappointed. So istikhara is really, in the end of it, it's just an exercise in trust. That's all it is. Oh Allah, I'm putting this affair in your control. It's already in his control. But I am acknowledging and submitting to the fact that it's in your control. And I'm disconnecting any, I'm trying to disconnect any emotional connection to this. And what, what I want to say to you, O oh Allah, in this dua is that I'm actually more interested in you being pleased with me and me being pleased with what you've written for me than I am in somehow figuring out how to make what I want mine. I want what you want. For me to be mine, not what I want for me. And the goal is, inshallah, that our hearts are so connected to Allah through things like prayer and things like sadaqah and things like Quran and things like reading and studying and, and good company. The goal is that your heart is so connected that you actually find yourself making the decision naturally that would have pleased Allah in the first place. Inshallah. So we ask Allah Ta'ala to give us all the ability to hand it over to him and to defer all of our decisions to Him, and to be pleased in doing so. That our trust in Him is greater than our trust in ourselves. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. Jazakallah khairan, Shaykh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Alhamdulillah, I'm glad we were able to fit in a marriage talk during the last 10 nights of Ramadan, mashallah. <laughs> The whole talk was basically about marriage. That's it. That's it. That's it's the important stuff. Um, <laughs> no, mashallah. Um, the next section that the author has here in his text, um, the next topic of discussion that he has here, he titles it "Oliya Allah," the friends of God, the associates of Allah the affiliates of the divine. And real quickly as a preface, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Allah inna awliya Allahi la khawfun alayhim wa lahum yahzanun. 
that the friends of God, there is no fear upon them, nor will they ever grieve anything. And there's a hadith Qudsi, a sacred tradition, a sacred narration, in which the Prophet ﷺ says that Allah Almighty has declared that man adali waliyan adantu bil harb that someone who harms or disturbs a friend of mine, then I have declared war against that person. So based off of these sacred texts, these verses of the Qur'an, these statements of the Prophet and there's so many other verses of the Qur'an which reiterate the same idea and theme. In Islam, we do have a legitimate, very sacred concept of being a friend of God. And this is not just some kind of, you know, Muslim myth or some folklore or some, you know, stuff that old people talk about or some cultural phenomena. This is a real legitimate concept from the Qur'an that talks about being a friend of God. Now, the question really is, how does one attain that position and that status? And so he talks about some of this. He says, that your primary concern in your in this worldly life, in these years that we have on this earth, your primary concern becomes how to come closer to Allah. And how you can acquire more and more of Allah's benevolence and blessing in your life. And you work hard to be amongst the group of people who very intensely love Allah and therefore He loves them. Or they, He loves them and so therefore they are able to love Him. And Allah is pleased with them and they are pleased with the decree of their Lord. God has chosen these people for Himself. And Allah has dignified them and honored them by making them His friends. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has brought them to His doorstep. That they are constantly... And this is the analogy that's used by a lot of the classical scholars. Even Aisha Siddiqa radiallahu ta'ala anha, our mother Aisha, she actually used the same analogy of, you know, when you knock on the door of the generous person, they always open the door to you. Um, they will never just slam the door in your face. They'll open the door for you. So now thinking about knocking figuratively, knocking on the door of the most generous, the most kind, the most merciful, the most noble, right? And so... Allah has brought them to His doorstep. bihi, And Allah has preoccupied, Allah has occupied their mind, their heart, with Himself. And Allah has attached their hearts to the love of the Divine, the love of God. And He has occupied their tongues with his remembrance. 
and they are constantly involved in the worship and the obedience of Allah. At some point, they stop being affected by the distractions. They don't look here and there. After some point, they just are totally dialed in. Min dunya wala whether it be any kind of worldly distraction or anything else. So, what this is talking about is, we keep wondering, there's always a lot of talk and discussion about being a friend of God. How can I put myself in that position to be from amongst the friends of God? And what we have to understand is, the friends of Allah is like an invitation-only thing. There's no RSVP. There's no link to click. There's nowhere to sign up. There's nowhere to apply. There's no admissions form. It's an invite-only thing. You're either invited or you're not. Now that, when you first hear that, the first reaction is a little maybe sense of hopelessness. Like, oh... Well, that sucks, because I'm probably not getting the invite. Why would I get an invite? But when you actually understand it, because it's not something where it's like some, you know, spiritual survivor, right? Where it's like everybody gets dropped on an island and the last person surviving gets to be the friend of Allah. Because I definitely would lose that one. I'm definitely not surviving, okay? So that's actually more hopeless to say that it's like something that you can earn. That's actually more hopeless. Because you think, again, I'm, you know, this is supposed to be motivational, but for a moment, let's kind of digress. You think, I mean, I won't speak about y'all, mashallah, y'all are amazing people. I could never hang with the likes of Abu Bakr. This man gave everything he owned twice in one lifetime. He bankrupted himself twice for Allah and His Messenger. Like imagine that, you just clear out your house, your account, all of it. Where all you got to show is a shirt on your back and he did that not once, but twice in one lifetime. I can't hang with somebody like that. Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, who would take on the world, who would literally fight everybody for the Prophet for the sake of Allah. I, I, don't, I can't hold the candles to him, someone like him. You know? And the list goes on and on, like these people the companions, that entire generation, the next generation, the tabi'un, the great scholars of our tradition. Like, I can't hold a candle to those people. So if this is something that you have to earn, then I don't really stand a chance. I don't rank anywhere. But the fact that it's invite only is actually why I have hope. Because the way that we can get invited is by being so annoying and so desperate 
and I'm going to use a word, and obviously I'm, you know, just trying to help all of us relate to it. To be, <laughs> the only way I can get invited is I'm so pathetic that I won't take no for an answer. I won't take no for an answer. Like, you know, if Ustad is having like a really exclusive, cool people's party, which tells you why I wouldn't be invited because I called it a cool people's party, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that guy. Please tell me that guy's not going to be there, right? Please, please tell him to organize mine. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> that's, uh, that's on the DL, brother. But, uh, so, but yeah, so, you know, someone's having like a really exclusive, super cool party. And I'm like, mm, I got to get invited. So I'm like, hey, uh, Ahmed, uh, I heard, uh, so what are you, you going to be doing Thursday? And he's like, oh, nothing, you know, just kind of taking it easy. Uh, taking it easy where? <laughs> and he's like, you know, at my house. Oh, at your house? Like, so you'll be at home? Yeah, but, you know, I don't know how long, I might have to kind of run here and there. I'm like, I can come by. I'm really close. Um, and he's like, well, I'll let you know when I'm home. It's like, no problem, brother. I don't mind swinging by. I'll check on it. And then I'm, I'm kind of like, but, but uh, Usado Bedla said that he's going to be at your place. Yeah, I know. He might come by for something. So I was wondering, you know, maybe I'd come by as well. And I'm just not taking no. I'm not taking the hint. I'm not. I've already, you think I don't get what I'm doing? Of course I know what I'm doing. I'm just, I decided before my conversation with Abbas, I am not taking no for an answer. I am getting invited to the exclusive Taco Bell situation. <laughs> I am getting, <laughs> all right, the secret's out, brother. Out too, much, man. too much, too much, too much. Sheikh Mahmoud would say, it's tough. It's tough, lock this man up. <laughs> so... But no, I decided I'm not taking no for an answer. So that's a silly analogy, you all understand. But that's kind of the idea. It is, subhanAllah, it is our, our only hope. The fact that this club, awliya Allah, this group, this is invite only. Because all we got to do is we got to decide we're not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to sit down in front of the door. I'm and I'm going to camp out in front of your door. I'm not going nowhere. Oh Allah, until you let me in. Until you let me in. I'm not going nowhere. Because i got nowhere else to go. Right? And that's what it means to be a friend of Allah. Now, obviously he does talk about, you know, more things where we have to then kind of prove our sincerity. Right? Show up early. Be standing there. You know, bring the paper plates. Like, just do what you can do. And that's what he's talking about. That you make time for Allah. You remember Allah. You obey Allah. You worship Allah. And you try to do all those things. And the last point that I wanted to make here, and there's a story that he shares, and I'll share the story because it's very beautiful and powerful, is that... There is this misnomer and misunderstanding that many of our classical scholars have touched upon. Imam Ghazali talks about this in all of his works, from Ayyul Wala to the Ihya to so many 
places he touches on this. Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala has talked about, has talked about this. Ibn al-Qayyim in Madaraj al-Salikin he talks about this. Um, and that is, there's this misnomer to develop somewhere where being a friend of God somehow meant that you are performing some kind of like magical feats and miraculous acts and you are able to you know bend time and space like it's almost like being a being a wali of allah is like being like an avenger or something right it's like having superpowers like this guy goes flying by in the sky and you're like oh that's a wali of allah right um, and this idea, this misnomer developed that they did unbelievable supernatural things and that's what made them friends of God. And once they became friends of God, then they gained all these superpowers and now they're able to do even more supernatural things. And there's no truth to any of that at all. Do sometimes supernatural events occur? Absolutely they do. Mu'ajizat, the miracles of the prophets, the angels coming down onto the earth, like the angels in the battlefield at Badr, and even karamatul awliya'i haqqun, right? That there are sometimes remarkable events that happen in the lives of remarkable people, sure. But none of it is a path, a there's no direct correlation to being a friend of God, nor do any of those things validate or prove or substantiate someone's claim to being a friend of God. But rather, the scholars had different kind of ibarat, they had different expressions where they talked about this, where they would say things like that the greatest karama, that the greatest display of being a friend of God that someone can have is mulazamatu sunnah is to be very strictly adherent to the lifestyle, the character, and the you know, God consciousness of the Prophet To live and walk and talk like the Prophet means that you're a wali of Allah. That's being a true friend of God. That means Allah has really truly blessed you. When you start walking and talking and breathing the Qur'an, sitting and sleeping and eating and just thinking the Qur'an, when you see and live your life, you see the world through the Qur'an and you live your life based on the Qur'an, that's being a real friend of Allah. When people interact with you and they feel like they got a small little taste and glimpse of what it must have been like to interact with the Prophet now you're a friend of God. Because the Prophet was the beloved of Allah. He was the ultimate friend of God. He was Habibu Rabbil Alameen. وَإِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهَ That's why Allah told the Prophet قُلْ Tell them that if you do truly claim to love Allah, then follow me, follow Muhammad وسلم, and Allah will love you. That's the surefire way. That's the shortcut. That's the secret. No real secret. But we like to think of things in that way, right? Everyone's looking for a hack all the time. Okay, fine. You want the hack to being a friend of Allah? L try to be like the Prophet Just try to be like him. Right? At least try. And so the story that I'll sh conclude here, that he has shared here, it's a beautiful story, and it's about one of the companions of the Prophet Mu'adh bin Jabal radiallahu ta'ala anhu who was very beloved to the Prophet He was actually someone the Prophet told him, Ya Mu'adh, inni yuhibbuk. He said, Mu'adh, I love you. 
You are beloved to me. You are Habibi. Right? So Mu'adh was somebody really remarkable. When he was on his deathbed, he would start like losing consciousness. He would keep passing out. And then he would regain consciousness. And he kept saying, when he would regain consciousness, he would say, that, oh Allah, I swear to you, إِنَّكَ لَتَعْلَمُ أَنَّ قَلْبِي يُحِبُّكَ Oh Allah, you know that my heart is filled with your love. So, he asked someone, can you check to see if it's morning time yet? They looked and they said, yeah, it's morning time. He said, that, oh Allah, I take refuge with you from a night, the morning of which will lead to the fire of hell. And then he said that, I welcome death. And death is someone, he's the visitor that is very, you know, that you, that you feel, have very mixed feelings about. And he said that, oh Allah, you know that I no longer wish to stay alive in this world so that I can plant a few more orchards and trees or that I could dig streams and rivers and just worldly things. But rather, if I did remain alive in this world, or if I wished to remain alive a little longer, it would only be so that I could fast another day for you, and I could stand in prayer one more night for you. And I could try to go and seek more knowledge or participate in the gatherings of the remembrance of Allah for you. One of his students who was sitting there with him, he started to cry. So he said to him, he said, why do you cry? He said that, I don't cry simply because of our relationship, like personal relationship. The loss of our personal relationship is not what's making me cry. Nor is the thought of no longer being able to financially benefit from you making me cry. But what makes me cry is, I will no longer be able to learn from you. And I will no longer be able to gain the knowledge and the understanding from you that helps me come closer to my Lord. So he told him, don't cry. He says that whoever truly seeks knowledge and understanding and closeness to Allah, Allah will give it to him. Just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showered his servant Ibrahim alayhi salam with his favors. And then he said that finally that day is coming when we will no longer be able to gain any more knowledge nor will we be able to do anything else in terms of our faith and our iman but we'll ultimately be laid down in our graves and we all have to stand before Allah and answer Allah alone. So build a relationship with Allah. He's even telling him at this point, like, you have assumed me as your conduit to Allah, and even in that there is an error on your part. This is a good teacher. He's saying that no, connect to Allah directly. You might have learned some good things from me, but you can get to Allah without me. 
I, you should not stop seeking Allah just because I'm gone. But you should continue to seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I am not some kind of exclusive means for you to be able to come close to Allah, but rather keep seeking, keep working, keep striving to come closer and closer to Allah. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the ability to be able to seek His nearness. We have precious moments remaining here in the month of Ramadan. We're not done. We're not done. Right? Yes, all the big programs and the khatams and the du'as and the qiyams and the, you know, suhoor fasts, right? Uh, <laughs> still too soon. But, uh, you know... <laughs> He's like, I'm still hungry. Um, <laughs> I still haven't had suhoor in four days. But uh, so, <laughs> but uh, no, all the big, you know, amazing programs have happened, and those were good. Those were good. That was special, and we're supposed to make the most of those occasions. But we're not done yet. <laughs> I know Ustad gives this talk every year at the end of the month of Ramadan. amalu bil khawati. The Prophet ﷺ said, actions and their stature, their value, their significance is really based on or is rooted in how they are concluded. Finish big, finish strong, finish good. Right? And so we still got a lot of time left. Right? Alhamdulillah, we still got a lot of time left. So let's make the most of this last opportunity. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us. Anything else, Ustaz? Barakal fikum, everyone. Jazakumullah khairan. Thank you for coming and spending these moments to reflect with us here at night. And inshallah, in about five minutes or uh, three minutes, inshallah, we'll start the Qiyam prayers. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>